Thanks, William. After a reading like that, I know where our thinking is. Uh, We're in 1 Corinthians. We will get there a little, um, but I want us to start back in Genesis, that first reading. And um, even as we head there, can I remind you, we have um, uh, connect cards, QR codes, all the questions that we'll want to flood in about that um, reading that I won't address. Uh, There's your opportunity. But how about... As we come to the Word of God, um, we ask for him to work in our hearts and minds. Let's pray. Lord and Father, uh, we come to you tonight knowing that you're a good God, a gracious God, uh, a God who made us, a God who understands us, a God who speaks that we might know how to live as you've made us, uh, how to live according to our design, how to live to please you. And Father, we ask that you'd speak to us in such a way that we'd hear your voice We'd love your voice, we'd love to listen to you and follow you and by your spirit you'd transform us to be all the more like your son, the Lord Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer uh, was a man who was imprisoned by the Nazis, taken to a concentration camp for an attempt uh, on Hitler's life, a plot to get rid of him. Uh, From within the confines of uh, that concentration camp, he wrote a poem uh, titled, Who Am I? Uh, It voices his disconnection uh, between the kind of confident appearance, the way other people perceived him and his inner trembling, how he felt on the inside. Um, And it's just we all know something of that feeling to varying degrees. You know, there's that who we feel we are, um, how it is that we present to other people and then who we imagine we should be. And which, if any of those, is the the real me? And the poem finishes this way. You might have been glancing at it. Who am I? This or the other? Am I one person today and tomorrow another? Or am I both at once? A hypocrite before others and before myself a contemptibly woebegone weakling? Or is something within me still like a beaten army fleeing in disorder from victory already achieved? Who am I? They mock me, these lonely questions of mine. Whoever I am, thou knowest, O God, I am thine. So he's saying, I don't even know myself, he says, but God, you know me. And God knows you. And better still, he tells us. Genesis 1, verse 27, Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness. That is, our maker speaks into our confusion. He explains humanity. He says clearly every person is God's image. Uh, That that is, every day I look in the mirror. Um, I'm well aware some of you think, really, why? Um, I shave, that's why. Um, And each day I look in the mirror and I see my image, I see my likeness. Now, my image cannot do all that I can do, but it reflects something of who I am. And God says, let us make mankind in our image. And if you want to understand an image, what do you need to study? It's not the image, but the reality. You know, don't, don't go closer to the mirror, get closer to the one reflected in the mirror. And a human at that level is like a mirror held to God, his image. And so to understand a person, the best way to study is study the reality, God. And so in the coming weeks, um, we're exploring that, exploring living as God's image by knowing him. Uh, We're going to look at marriage and singleness and friendship. Uh, But today's the foundation, God telling us who we are, defining humanity. Um, Now, I'm I'm aware as much as I'm going to try and give a a clear framework, um, 
You heard that reading from 1 Corinthians. There's going to be questions raised. I want to encourage you, explore those conversations. Um, God speaks so that we would think his thoughts after him. And he speaks that we might know ourselves and understand others and respond rightly to him. Uh, And so to our uncertainty, God clearly says every person is God's image. And we're going to look at humanity in three parts. The first two are a bit longer. Um, The first, humanity is honoured as God's image. Every person is valuable. So Genesis 1, 26 and 7, God makes us in his likeness. Um, And even that, we we, we kind of take for granted, and yet it was a radical countercultural statement of the day. For only in that day, only kings were God's image. And yet the Bible, this is honours everyone, from the least to the greatest, all are the image of God. And his likeness is seen in three R's, um, relationship, rule and reflection. So God made humanity for relationship. Uh, 1 verse 27, we are made like him, a complex unity. God created man, singular, in his own image. Just as there is one God, there is one humanity. And it goes on, in the image of God, he created them, that the true God is three persons. It's, it's hinted at throughout, even at the start of this chapter, chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, we're introduced to both God, the Word, and His Spirit. Um, and the original word for, for God being used here um, is plural, but with a singular verb. Uh, that is, we're, we're a complex unity, one humanity, male and female. That is, God is, God is a community of other-centred love. He is love um, that our relationships mirror. He made us to relate. He made us, he made humanity to rule. Uh, 1 verse 28, uh, God blesses humanity. He commands us uh, throughout this section, be fruitful, increase, fill, subdue, rule. As we, we act, we, he made us to act on his behalf. So um, the flow from chapter 1 to 2, God began by naming creation. He called the light day, he called the dark night. But then you get to chapter 2 and he invites Adam, you keep that work going, you, you continue my work. He invites Adam, you get to name the animals. Uh, image bearing is to continue that work, to do God's work, to care for and cultivate his creation. Um, so there's a, a strong word, subdue, used there. It's a, a word that means to assert your will over something, to make it conform to your plan. Um, like gardeners, we rearrange what God has given us to make it more fruitful. We don't just kind of um, preserve the world as we received it, uh, nor do we exploit it or, or destroy it. No, as God's image, we rearrange the raw materials that he has given in a way that helps uh, the world in general flourish and people in particular flourish. And God made humanity to reflect. Uh, God, in in, uh, chapter 1, verse 11, God speaks about the plants. And in verse 24, he speaks about the animals. And then there's a move. In verse 22, he speaks to the animals. In verse 28, he speaks to humanity. And then you get into chapter 2, Genesis 2, the Lord starts to speak with Adam. And in fact, there's even a name change for God. In chapter 1, he's God in that kind of generic sense. In chapter 2, he's the Lord, the personal name, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, this personal name for God. Suddenly, um, God invites us in, humanity, in to share his creative word. That is, we are made to reflect God. And like, a, like an image in a mirror, we reflect God best when there is no barrier between us. That is when we focus directly on him. And so to bear God's image is to have a a capacity, not just to relate to other people, but to actually relate to God himself, to to listen to God's voice and have him listen to us. 
And humanity is God's image. Um, there's a beautiful and profound dignity to this, a, a complex unity. We, in God's good design, he made each of us individually whole, a body and a soul. Not parts in opposition seeking to kind of radically separate one, one from the other, but deeply united forever. Um, in Mark 10, verse 28, uh, Jesus reminds of God's um, eternal intention. Mark 10, verse 28, that God's design is that um, even though the body is separated from the soul at death, they are re- reunited at the resurrection, whether, whether being raised to eternal life or eternal destruction. As we're, we're all embodied souls, we are integrated persons. Um, so Psalm 139, if you don't know Psalm 139, you should get to know it, it's a delightful psalm. Um, but in Psalm 139, uh, it speaks there of God knowing us better than we know ourselves. How, you know, he knows the word before it's even on our lips, the thought before it's in our minds. He knows us intimately. And it says there that you know, the, the soul is the soul of the body. The body is the body of the soul. They're interconnected. Um, uh, Rob Smith reflects on that psalm and he says, There is no person or soul or spirit that has been created independently of the body and then placed in the body or perhaps in the wrong body. No the Lord knit my body together in my mother's womb. See, God made each of us purposefully and personally and whole. We are God's image. Um, we may not know ourselves. There are things in, um, within us that we don't even understand about ourselves, but God knows us and God tells us. And he tells us we are valuable over all creation because of our connection to him. So John Stott explains it this way. Um, The biblical revelation reminds us that human beings are not self-explanatory. They derive their meaning from outside themselves, from God in whose image they're made. We are not autonomous individuals. Fancy way of saying we're not a law to ourselves. We don't make up our own meaning, created um, ourselves constantly by the decisions and choices we make. No, we are images, we are reflections. So the dignity of our humanity is derivative. It comes from him whose image we bear. We are dependent beings. So he's saying our value, our dignity is derivative. It's a way of saying we matter because him, because he matters. The passionate atheist Sam Harris was debating how it is that we establish values and he picked up a glass that was next to him and he said, what if I told you this isn't just any glass, that this is the glass Elton John drank from at his last concert you know, it was a concert there the night before anyone know we can get a photo Elton John he's the one on the right yeah would you pay for a concert no um, he's a fa- anyone know who Elton John is okay few uh, he says this is the glass that Elton John drank from at a concert that was here last night how much now do you want me to pay what do you want to pay me for it that is, he's making a point about value, isn't he? That the glass itself is worth, what, no, maybe a dollar, but the glass in connection to some celebrity, to a, a cultural icon, suddenly it's worth hundreds, thousands more. Um, the value of the glass is dependent. It's derivative. It's who it's connected to. You know, why is it that we matter? Why, do, why is it that people matter? Why is it that we wrestle as a nation about the, the, the gap between um, our Indigenous uh, and the non-Indigenous? Why is it that we feel quite deeply about what's going on in Gaza, in fact so deeply that a conflict on the other side of the world means there are people protesting on our streets. See, if it was just about our chemical makeup, you know, what our, our body, our bits and pieces were worth, what are we worth? Maybe a few hundred dollars? Um, 
Not sure who's in the market to buy that. But, um, you know, you, you could put a person to work, couldn't you, and they will earn more. Um, but if we're going to create our own value by, by what we do, that you're going to end up with some people who are valued much more than others. You know, like to keep the analogy going, some glasses will be considered crystal and others will be disposable. And God to that says, no. No, every person matters, not because of them, but because of their connection to him, because we're his reflection. That is, humanity is honoured as God's image and therefore every life is sacred. You have never met someone who is not sacred. And the equal dignity of every person, it is not self-evident. It is not the product of the Enlightenment. It flows from the Scriptures. You take God away, you remove the grounds for human rights. Because the inevitable logic of coming from nothing and heading to nothing is that all that's in between is nothing. So without, without God, uh, equality is groundless. I mean, we, we might hold to it, we might long for it. You know, even the atheist grieves the conflict in Gaza. There's just no logical grounding. Life's sanctity is not self-evident, but it is instinctive. So every person is valuable as God's image. And can I say, this truth will lift a burden if, if, you know, on you and, and our friends and neighbours. Uh, it's a burden of our own making. See, our sin, our our inclination to not listen to God as our creator and instead kind of turn our back, no longer reflect him, it disconnects us not only from him but from others and even from ourselves, a disruption within. You know, from Genesis 3 on, um, you know, just the chapter after, our experience is as God's distorted image. Uh, Romans 8 uh, describes all creation now as groaning. That, That sin and its impact burdens us all but in different ways. And our culture at the moment is burdened with you know, finding your true self by looking inside. You know, I, I've got to muster up the strength to create my meaning and that is, there is a great burden. There's anxiety in defining yourself, isn't there? Because what if you get it wrong? What if you waste it all? Um, and there's pain in trying to bend creation when your internal idea of your real you doesn't align with your body and surrounds. And that's a real pain for people. And it's crushing to have to earn your own value and do something to prove your matter, to keep showing, oh, I've got to achieve, I've got to achieve. Otherwise, what, am I significant? Do I matter? And, you know, that need to look within me is actually why surveys show that people fear dementia more than death. They fear in dementia, they'll actually lose themselves. Um, disability theologian John Swinton responds to that fear. I think we have a quote, do we? Yes. He says, when you begin to forget things, it is a source of sadness and lament but not a source of um, existential loss, a a loss of who you are and why you matter. Because at the heart of our faith is the idea that we are held in God's memory. So be assured, even if we forget everything we know, God will not forget us. See, what's going on? Sin disrupts creation, but it doesn't destroy it. Broken as we are, we still bear his image. We're still valuable because of him. And that speaks louder than, than that voice of disconnection. It says you matter. Now, self-esteem experts say that what secures us is the praise of the praiseworthy. That is, um, you know, when someone you admire, someone you value, someone you look up to, when they praise you, it fills you up. And there is none more praiseworthy than God himself. And God says, he looks and he says, you bear my likeness. And his image says to those who feel unworthy, you matter. And his image says to those who who look and draw their need from insecure sources, you know, within or from their family or from wealth or work or looks or friendship, it says you don't need them. 
and his image frees us to honour those that the world overlooks or forgets or ignores and it emboldens us to stand against those who the world fears. So humanity is honoured as God's image. Uh, Secondly with that, humanity is distinct in God's image. Uh, Difference is to be delighted in. So Genesis 1, 26 and 7, 27, male and female, he created them. Uh, The Bible is clear about basic binary sex Uh, and the biological difference of Genesis 1, you know, male and female is is developed in Genesis 2 with gendered nouns, man and woman. Um, So Rob Smith, quote him again, he says, the clear implication of this move from male and female to man and woman is an implication everywhere confirmed in the biblical narrative as it unfolds. In other words, all across the Bible. Um, that, That a person's biological sex reveals and determines both their objective gender, what gender they in fact are, and certain key gender roles, should they be taken up. That is, human males grow into men and potentially husbands and fathers, and human females grow into women and potentially wives and mothers. A person's biological sex reveals their actual gender, determines their true gender identity and establishes certain gender roles. Now, I realise this might be difficult for some who are wrestling with these issues at a very personal level to hear this. But humanity is distinct in God's image. Now, of course, the major thrust of the scriptures is our commonality, our unity, our common humanity as male and female, as men and women. Uh, the Bible almost entirely is addressed to us um, you know, as people rather than separately, rather than distinguishing us. Um, we, we're only looking at the distinction at a bit more length now tonight because the air we breathe doesn't deny our common humanity, but our culture does struggle with our difference. And difference, let me be really clear. Remember, uh, like in the mirror, we look at the reality, not the reflection. Difference is not about value. Difference is grounded in God himself. We look to him. God is one, Father, Son and Spirit. God is love. God is perfect relationship. Perfect because each member loves so selflessly, uh, give themselves so totally they become one. Uh, And that perfect relationship is based on, built on distinction. They don't all do the same task. The Spirit didn't die on the cross. The Father didn't become flesh. The Son doesn't decide when he'll return. And within this perfect relationship, there is order. The Father sent the Son into the world, John 3.16. Jesus says he came to do the Father's will in John 4. The Son doesn't send the Father, but both the Father and the Son send the Spirit, and yet all three are to be worshipped, honoured and adored. There's difference... Distinction that blesses others is a joy that brings them together. In John 10, 17, it's why the Father loves the Son. And humanity reflects God's distinctiveness. Male and female, he created them. Um, We are made different in sex, expressed in gender, that we might draw closer together as one humanity. Now, I realise, sadly, this is not our experience. Um, we're, We're this side of the fall. Sin distorts distinction to actually alienate and draw us further away from each other. It disrupts creation. It means our world is confused about gender and whether it exists at all. And there will be some here wrestling with feelings of disconnection with your own body. I'm so glad you're here. And into this confusion and pain, God speaks with clarity and compassion. Clarity uh, about our creation, both our brokenness. um, That means we are all, every one of us here, uh, are in some way not what we were made to be. It's clear about But also compassion, inviting all to come to Jesus, whatever your struggle, and trust his love to restore you in part now and in eternity experience wholeness. 
See, it's in Jesus, in coming to him, um, our humanity is restored, that we might delight in difference. Um, that's what I'm going to get us look over at 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 11, you've forgotten about it, it's been that long. Uh, and yet go there now, page 1182, 11, no, 1150, 1152. 1 Corinthians 11, what's going on here? Paul is expounding creation's picture of men and women in a community that is restored in Christ, a community where gender difference is honoured. So 11 verse 7, both man and woman are the image of God and 11 verse 3 speaks to that distinction. He says, now I want you to realise the head of every man is Christ, the head of the woman is man, the head of Christ is God. He writes this really carefully. He doesn't do a kind of simplistic line order of headship, you know, God, Christ, man, woman. Now he plays with the order. Um, Man's head is Christ. Woman's head is man, Christ's head is God. Um, and, and it's a kind of careful way of writing so that whether you're male or female, Jesus is your model. So 11 verse 3, manhood looks to the headship of Christ. Men are to display loving, sacrificial authority like Jesus. Um, head means authority, not in a dominating or abusive way. There is no excuse for men abusing power anywhere, especially here in the church. It is authority in the sense of responsibility taking initiative to bring justice, taking ownership for the the spiritual health of this community, bearing the cost and the pain when things go wrong. If you think about all the ways that Jesus uses his power and authority, that's the headship men are called to. And it is on men to reflect why it is that some women feel alienated and hurt by church. And 11 verse 3, womanhood looks to the humility of Christ to display that selfless work of Jesus. That just as Jesus actively chose not to assert himself in the garden of Gethsemane but go with his father's plan to save, women are invited to display humility in church life. Dr. Claire Smith writes this, it's important to notice what it doesn't say. It doesn't say that all women are to submit to all men. It is coming at the relationship from the other end. It is about headship rather than submission. Also, it doesn't say that women are second-class citizens with less dignity, intelligence, worth and purpose than men. Just as Jesus is not diminished in glory and divinity because his head is God, neither are we diminished because our head is man. And at the same time, it doesn't say there's no difference in relationship between men and women. The assumption of this verse is there is an order in the relationship between men and women that is analogous to that of Christ and God. As humanity is distinct in God's image and and what God is doing is when we're restored in Christ, he invites us to express that difference rather than blur gender distinction. So in Corinth, uh, the principle is displayed through covering, you know, because we know every culture has rules about fashion. Um, and we know this, they're, they're not written, but you instinctively know. You know that it's okay, it's actually fine and recommended, you know, wear, wear your swimmers at the beach, but it is not okay for you to wear your Speedos at a fine dining restaurant. Okay, we know this even without the rules being on the top of the menu. Um, clothing makes statements. Uh, and in Corinth, head covering highlights that gender distinction. Now, for us, uh, veiling doesn't culturally express gender, so we don't have women wear hats in church, but we also don't look to kind of transgress or blur that, like you know, if Liam had come and read the Bible in a skirt, in our culture would be transgressive, blurring that gendered line. So we still seek to try and express those differences for a raft of reasons. Um, I won't list them all, they'll be in your your minds though. Verse 3, because of God's order. Verse 8 and 9, because of creation. Verse 10, because of the angels. 
Verse 11, because of the nature of things. Verse 16, because of the practice of all churches. You can pick them up with me later. Um, It's enough to see. uh, We don't seek to blur those rather than we we, we delight in the difference. We express distinction, of course, thoughtfully. Uh, Rebecca McLaughlin writes this. We must affirm the goodness of male and female bodies without clinging to unbiblical gender stereotypes. If Jesus cooked for his disciples, wept with his friends, took babies in his arms, we don't need to pretend that manhood is just about loving cars, watching sports and lifting weights. And if Jesus had some of his most important theological conversations with women, we must not act as if women only care about cooking and clothes. You see what's going on? Expressing difference is more than an outward sign. It's a heart. In the redeemed community, we relate with the overflow of a heart that delights in God's creation, loves his ways without resorting to simplistic rules. Hearts that affirm equal value and honour distinctives. With all that in mind, we come to our third, final, much briefer point. Um, God's image restores humanity. True humanity is in Christ. Remember what we said? God God said, let's make mankind in our image, in our likeness. That is, God is telling us who we are. And yet, as you heard this, you might be kind of thinking, really? Um, As we've seen what humanity is, Bonhoeffer's poem might still be stinging. Who am I? A hypocrite before others. I'm not all that. Because the description God gives, it's not all me. I, I can't rule myself let alone the world, and I don't consistently relate properly. I don't look at others and kind of go, oh, there's the image of God and treat them with the honour and dignity that they deserve. I don't always work with others and relate in a way that that blesses them. God describes humanity, and and I suspect if we take it to heart, we we, we couldn't help but feel at points we are subhuman, less than what we should be, distorted images. And in that moment, if we're going to get obsessed and start looking down there, um, what we've done is fall into the trap again of looking within ourselves to, you know, to find ourselves. Uh, we're looking at the mirror, not the reality. And, and it's a cracked mirror at that. And what God is inviting us to do tonight, even as we might feel the weight of I'm not all I should be, is um, don't look within, but look to him to see what it is to be truly human. You know, male and female, he created them. It says you know, the base unit of humanity is to be persons in relationship. And 1 Corinthians 11 is showing how Christ redeems what our sin destroyed. So 11 verse 11, in the Lord... Um, woman is not independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. You know, notice the in the Lord, it's in coming to Christ, we are restored as his image, restored as humanity. We come to him because he first came to us, that he might restore us. Colossians 1.15, Colossians 1.15 tells us, the son is the image of the invisible God. God himself, the son, enters the world as one of us. Um, he, he shows, he is what humanity always should have been, that perfect reflection of the perfect relationship. And though Jesus rules this creation, he goes to the cross for your failings and mine that he might become the head of a new creation, a restored creation because his cross restores all things and that includes you and includes me if only we will come to him. You know, he'll restore us now in part, one day in full, whatever your struggles, whatever your wrestles with who you are, the solution for us all is come to Jesus. And if you haven't before, come to him tonight. For Jesus' love for us is so great that not only, not only will he accept anyone who comes to him, he promises if you come to him, he won't leave you as you are. He loves you too much to leave you as he found you. He's not going to be you know, satisfied until, you know, the Father won't be satisfied until we perfectly reflect Christ. Um, George MacDonald put it, God is easily pleased but um, hard to satisfy. 
You know, in, in the same sense like a father might be with his toddler's first steps. You kind of go, he's really pleased with it, but he's not going to be satisfied as if, you know, the child's 20 now and he's still toddling around. No, no, you, you know, you want someone, and that, that is how much the father loves us. And so even through painful refinement, we come to him. His mercy will transform us into his likeness bit by bit. So if you're truly human, the better question, the question that's better than who am I, is the question Jesus asks of his own disciples. That's the question we should ask. Jesus says to his disciples, who do you say I am? So it's in answering that. It's in looking more closely at Jesus. That is the way forward. That to be truly human, to truly know yourself, is only in truly knowing him. For God says, you are our image, you are our likeness. Let me pray. Our Lord and Father, we come before you and we want to give you thanks for your kindness and mercy in making us in your image. And Father, we recognise we don't always reflect you as we should. We thank you for your son, the Lord Jesus, who came, that he might restore us by the cost of his own blood. And Father, we pray that we might see him more clearly, trust him more fully and in doing so, become all that you both made and saved us to be. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.